episode 12 with Pablos Holman. Hello and welcome to The Inventor's Mind. My name is Chris Hawker, professional inventor, author, and president of Trident Design LLC. Join me each episode as I talk about the mechanics of invention, interview leading innovators, and discuss big ideas. Today on The Inventor's Mind, we have Pablos Pullman. Pablos is a senior inventor at the Intellectual Ventures Laboratory in Seattle, Washington, which is a company that was founded by Nathan Mirvold, who is the chief technical officer for Microsoft for about 15 years. Welcome to the show, Pablos. Hi there. Thanks for coming on. Pablos and I met just last week, actually. A friend connected us through Twitter and said I should have him on the show. So I reached out to him and just said, hey, who are you? And, and he got back to me and we ended up having a little chat on Twitter, which eventually led to a phone conversation and then led to this interview. Um, Pablos has an extremely interesting job at an extremely interesting place. And so why don't you tell us a little about what you do and how you came to be there? Sure. So I work at the Intellectual Ventures Lab, which is in, uh, in Washington and in Seattle. And what we do is we work on uh, invention projects uh, that are all over the map, all different kinds of projects and we have a different kind of business that um, doesn't make any products all we do is try to invent stuff and um, come up with new technologies that will be useful in the future and so there's a lot of uh, things that are interesting and different about us and what we do and our projects compared to other companies and can you tell us a little bit about the history of how Nathan started the company and, and how you got to be involved? Yeah, well, what Nathan was trying to do is figure out how to create a business model that would attract investment to invention. And so when you look at the way um, our funding models work now for, for different kinds of businesses, um, you have things like venture capital, but it really doesn't kick in until you already have a company and you have an invention already. Even angel investors often don't invest in a company until there's already an invention. Mm-hmm. You look at that, there's really nobody whose job is to invest in inventors and to fund them. And so what we saw is that, you know, 40 years ago, uh, venture capital was a totally crazy sounding kind of business. Those people were investing in companies that had never shipped a product before. And everybody knew that was stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually turned out to work out really well for a certain class of, of uh, startups. And so venture capital has grown into a huge industry. So what we do, we call invention capital. Mm-hmm. And the same rough concept applies. You know, what, what venture capital did is it turned a startup into a liquid capital asset, something that people could buy and sell and trade. And that attracted a lot of investment money. So we're trying to figure out how you do that with an invention. How do we take an invention and turn it into a liquid capital asset that you can buy and sell and trade? Mm-hmm. If we can do that, then we can attract a lot of invention or a lot of capital to invention. And that's a that's a really important thing to do because you know the world is making you know lots of new problems all the time, and we have to scale up our ability to invent solutions to those problems. And mm-hmm. Inventors 
usually get the short end of the stick. They're just left out on their own to figure it all out. And if you're a, you know, successful as an inventor and come up with an invention that works, uh, you're not considered a success until you turn yourself into a lawyer and patent it, turn yourself into a salesman and go sell it to somebody, uh, or turn yourself into an entrepreneur or businessman and create a company and make a product. Right. And so that's the kind of thing we're trying to figure out how to solve is how do you separate those roles and let inventors do what they're good at and keep doing it and get paid to do it and not have to turn them into businessmen and entrepreneurs and, and, and hand these inventions over to people who are good at that. And we see the converse all the time as well. You know, mm-hmm. a good businessman will make a business out of something crappy because it's all he could invent. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so we like to see those roles separated so that we can scale it all Specialized, up. yeah. Yeah. Well, it's inter- interesting because society seems to be relying on for the solution of the huge problems that are facing society, basically the draw of like the hope of striking it rich. Like, you know, we want inventors to invent the solutions to our problems, but there's no like system to do that. It's either the lone entrepreneur inventor who has an idea based on his personal experience, or it's the um, like university-based inventor who's in academia and sort of divorced from reality of the yeah. business world and what it takes to actually cause something to, you know, manifest in the real world. And and there's yeah. not and there's many. There's a lot of fertile ground in between mm-hmm. um, that's not getting recognized or supported. You know, I mean, maybe you, but I doubt you know very many people who have a business card that says inventor on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think I have one somewhere, but I, but like literally, that's not even considered a legitimate career right now. Right. <laughs> you know, entrepreneur wasn't even considered a legitimate career until, you know, the last decade or so, and uh, probably even less. And, and now we, like you said, we're looking to entrepreneurs to solve the problems of the world with almost no thought or mention of, the inventors that are necessary to and, make that work. And and we often tell people here at, at Trident that the skill set to be an inventor is radically different from the skill set to be an entrepreneur. And oh, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, you I mean if you know one of each, they're nothing like each other. <laughs> and occasionally you find an inventor who can become a good businessman. You know, that's the story of HP and Microsoft and Google. Um, in a way, and th- but those people are extraordinary, and it's very rare. Mm-hmm. And we just don't think that that scales. Right. Well, and, and there's a lot of great ideas out there that could potentially, tr- you know, transform certain areas of of humanities. You know, in terms of addressing problems, whether it's energy or hunger or materials issues, that won't see the light of day in a in a large scale fashion. You know because of that gap because you've got brilliant scientists whose only option to do research is in the university setting where they never have any real connection to the commercialization process interestingly like i'm here in columbus ohio where ohio state university is they recently invested a a huge amount of money into the tco the technology commercialization office which is a, a you know office that's supposed to be helping ohio state leverage 
all the intellectual property that's created by their massive research institution that they are um, struggling mightily because they just, you know, they're hiring academics within academia to try to do something that actually requires business people. But the business people find the experience of working with the academics to be futile because there's just such a disconnect between the way they view the world having never experienced you know the, the pace and urgency of the business world so there's, there's so a big I disconnect. Think that's, yeah that's a pretty classic problem and then you don't necessarily want to solve it by trying to you know re-educate academics you know their their mission isn't really invention it's basic research mm-hmm. you know, the mission is to discover how the world works and understand what's possible it's nothing to do with commercialization. I, I think that's okay, but we do have to figure out how to learn from them what's technically possible and turn it into invention. So that's why we specialize in just doing that, you know, and try and be just inventors. And we don't do basic research, and we don't really, you know, do commercialization, you know, mm-hmm. but we try to, um, you know, we, as a course of doing business, we try to close those gaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Have, have you guys seen, and, and I want to get back to sort of like how you got involved in this, but but first, have you guys seen other people sort of coming into the space? You sort of have pioneered an, a whole new business sure. model. Are there other people following suit? Well, we're doing what I think of as some, you know, a series of grand experiments in how you go about creating this what we call invention capital market. Um, so the biggest one is we, you know, we set up like a venture fund. So we get investors to give us money to manage, and then we don't use that to invest in companies or startups. We just use it to invest in invention. Now, the way that we go about that, you know, we, we're trying different things. So the biggest one is we buy invention from outside inventors. Um, Doing that is we've already become the biggest market in the world for inventions. So we uh, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on inventions, billions over over years on inventions. Um, the second thing we do is we hire um, notorious inventors to join our uh, kind of little cabal of inventors, and we um, steer them at big problems to solve. Um, and see what we can come up with. And that's the kind of work I do. So we house invention. Um, but not all the inventors work in the company or in the lab like I do. Most of them are, you know, have their own thing going. We have inventors all over the world that are helping us out in this fashion. And so we'll try to find the biggest problems that we can and then try to invent solutions for them ourselves. And that type of work is much more futuristic. You know, we tend to be working on a five or ten year horizon. And that doesn't necessarily seem like a long time in the future, but the truth is everybody else in the world is trying to invent a product that they could ship, you know, next, next year. year. Yeah. And they're trying to invent a faster, cheaper version of whatever they shipped last year. And so the fact that we don't invent anything you could ship next year, uh, we only invent the next generation of geez, means we have relatively little competition. Not a lot of people are doing that. 
we hope to prove it works and hope that a lot of other people will try and copy us and do that sort of thing in the future. But for now, um, it's pretty rare. Um, and then major kind of collective experiments I think of that we're trying is we have set up a system where we worked with outside inventors all over the world, thousands of them. And we have a contract with them uh, and we have a system where we publish problems we call request for invention, an RFI. And so we put out a request for invention that describes a problem that we think is worth solving. Um, and usually there's some real clear commercial application for it. And thousands of inventors around the world can read those and submit ideas internally, even without a patent. They can submit ideas to us. We evaluate them. We pay them for ideas we like. Uh, we do all the patent work. Um, when we make money licensing them out, we pay them some more. And at this point, we have inventors, uh, some inventors make their entire living just feeding that system. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a great way for inventors who are, you know, maybe very inventive but have a day job in a university research group or a corporate R&D lab or something. Um, but have excess inventive capacity in their spare time, they can come and, um, you know, invent with us. And so that's worked out really well. Um, and, you know, but all of these are, you know, experiments in my mind because, you know, we started them a decade ago, maybe. Uh, they're working out, but it's going to take a long time to do a good enough job of it that everyone takes notice and other companies start to try and do the same thing, I think. Fascinating. So tell us a little about how you got involved. What was your background and well, how did you I'm a computer get involved? Mm -hmm. um, and I work on my whole career. I've worked on taking computers and trying to cram them into places where they haven't been before um, and find new uses for them and advanced computers so that we can put them to good use. Um, so I've always been very interested in the practical application of computers. Um, just because of the, I suppose, in part, the timing. Um, I learned a lot more when I was a kid about computers um, just from playing with them myself than I probably could in college, and so I didn't end up going to college. The universities were sort of teaching the science of computation and how chips work and that kind of thing. But since I was interested in the application of computers and using them, it was always easier for me to get companies to hire me to buy the coolest new computers and play with them all day. So um, mm -hmm. I've been doing that for a long time. And probably, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I was working on creating AI systems for the stock market using big clusters of, of what were called supercomputers then, but, you know, are vastly slower than your phone is now. Mm -hmm. um, and those were <laughs> artificial intelligence systems that could do things like read the news and figure out if the news was about a particular stock, figure out if it was good news or bad news, things like that. And hmm. um, uh, that kind of thing is pretty normal today. In fact, it's gotten so normal that it's almost impossible for humans to trade stocks using their brains in competition. Mm -hmm. computers that do that kind of work. And so anyway, I did that type of thing. I worked on crypto systems, a lot of the type of stuff that um, laid the groundwork for things like Bitcoin. 
um, I was working on in the 90s when it was way too soon and not useful. <laughs> um, and now, and then after that, I went to work for uh, Jeff Bezos to build spaceships. So we built a lab called uh, Blue Origin and did a bunch of research projects on other ways of getting into space besides rocket ships. Um, but that was another way of using computers in, a, in an area where it hadn't been, you know, put to as much use as, as was possible on the bleeding edge. And then, um, and then after that, I worked on building the world's smallest PC with a company, a startup in San Francisco called OQO, where we worked on miniaturizing everything that was in a PC. And so we made, uh, this is in, in 2004, we shipped a computer that was the size of your passport, but one inch thick. Wow. And um, it had everything that a modern laptop had in it. You know, it had a, had a touch screen on it and a thumb board and USB and Firewire and Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and everything. So you could run a full version of Windows um, and you didn't have to use a dumbed down operating system. In those days, people were using things like Palm Pilots, right. which uh, you know always had very uh, dumbed down software and it was very difficult to make them useful. Um, so our idea was to try and make a really powerful machine that you could just take with you uh, that would fit in your pocket. And we succeeded at that. A lot of that type of miniaturization work that we did is now used to make iPhones and iPads and other small computers. Um, but our computer was much too cool and much too new and too expensive. And uh, that company didn't work out. So it sounds to me like you found yourself in the right spot. You've always been like ahead of the curve, and now you found a company who uh, is living ahead of the curve, right? And can afford... Well, I think that's, you know, that's my job, you know, is to try to live in the future a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of people these days, especially in, in high tech or in Silicon Valley, people are getting beaten over the head with with Moore's Law. And, uh, and it's kind of an aphorism now that drives a lot of high tech stuff. But I've been living with that for a really long time. And I think that kind of thing is what someone like someone interested in venting with computers needs to internalize really well. And so I'm never trying to invent for what is possible with computers today. I'm trying to invent for what's going to be possible with computers in five or 10 years, because I have a greater level of faith in their advancements than most people are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I try to live in the future a little bit, and I think that uh, we need some people to do that. Probably most people are better off living in prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't myself live so much in, the, you know, out in the future, but I live in uh, the, you know, what's possible today, you know, that yeah. isn't being done, you know, which has kind of been... Well, that's, you know, how I think about it is, you know, your job as an inventor is to pay attention to what became possible today. You mm -hmm. know, what are the new scientific breakthroughs, the new chips or new sensors or new, you know, technologies that are coming that have just become possible? And then, re you know, ask yourself, does this new superpower that I just got change anything that humans have ever done? Hmm. You know, can I go and do energy differently? Can I go do that kitchen gadget differently? Can I go do water purification differently? Can I, you know, 
solve some real problems? Can I change the way taxis work or you know, streaming video? So that's how an inventor, you know, who's you know a repeat inventor that's you know going and going and going, going like I do and the folks I work with operate. You know, we just collect new superpowers. And that's what's exciting about technology. We get them every day. Mm-hmm. And then we try and match them up. You know, I'm just filling my head with those. On the other side, I'm filling my head with all the problems in the world. And I try to match them up. And since I don't have to do a day job, like most people, um, I can keep up, at least in, in the area that I'm responsible for, which is computers. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, in our, where we are, we have other people who keep up and all different areas in physics and biology and chemistry and you know, all those kinds of things because you never know where your next superpower is going to come from. It's like the it's like the wild crats. I don't <laughs> Do you have kids? Whoever watches the wild crats, I don't think I know enough about them. They're uh, they get creature powers. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. My four-year-old uh, son Nico is obsessed with the wild crats, and every yeah, day they get. <laughs> Seven. Mm-hmm. So, how many how many people are there in the lab with you? Uh, we have about 150 people in the lab right now, mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know pretty big considering we started seven years ago with a Harley Davidson dealership that we had to cut out and build a lab in. So, um, so now we have you know a chem lab, we have a bio lab, we have couple of laser labs, we have a food lab, electronics lab, a machine shop full of, we basically built this place by buying one of every tool in the world Mm -hmm. and hiring one of every kind of scientist and then, you know, putting them all on the same team. And so probably the most unique thing about the lab is that, you know, if you've been to any other lab in the world, people are typically specialized, you know? If you're working there, you're surrounded by people who are experts in the same thing as you. Um, and there's not a lot of incentive to work with people in the lab next door. You know, especially in an academic environment, a lot of times you're competing with them for recognition or funding or whatever. And so it's not a lot of cross pollination between different areas of science. And that, in our experience, that's where you get your inventions. Almost all of them are at the borders between different areas in science and technology. So the way that we invent is we typically try to find somebody with a problem, a hard technical problem that they've been working on for 20 years and think it can't be solved. They know what's been tried before. If we find a guy like that, we'll sit him down and surround him with a nuclear physicist, a laser expert, a chemist, I'm a computer hacker. Collectively, we know the cutting edge in every area in science and technology. Mm-hmm. And by cross-pollinating that knowledge, we get inventions at the borders. Probably our most famous invention is this machine that finds mosquitoes and shoots them down with laser beams. Now, if you were in Africa working on solving malaria for 20 years, it still might not occur to you to try lasers. <laughs> it's not your job to know what the cutting edge in lasers is and what they're capable of and mm-hmm. what the cost of them is and where it's going and all that. So, you know, our invention is, you know, something possible because we had laser experts in the room. We had 
machine vision experts in the room, and we knew what should be at the edge of possible, mm-hmm. even if it had never been done before. And, you know, we actually didn't know if it could be done. We laughed about it. It sounded okay, but we didn't know. One of the guys in the room happened to have worked on Star Wars for Reagan, where they were trying to shoot down missiles from space using lasers. Mm-hmm. And so he pointed out that, you know, uh, we already figured out that it's possible to do that, and the target would be a lot smaller than a mosquito at the range we're talking about. So um, so we thought, oh, well, maybe it can be done. And then, you know, it took us another year to get around to building one um, and, and figure it all out. And so we built one and proved that it works, and now people believe it. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of thing is, is what we work on in the lab, taking a new invention and just trying to prove that it's going to work or that it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And then once you have an idea like that, which sounds totally awesome to us here in the Midwest where mosquitoes uh, are yeah. extremely annoying. So like, what do you do with that then? What's the next step with, with, well, for us, I mean, it's expanded over time. Initially we just figured we're done. You know, we proved that it worked now. Somebody else has to pick it up and go and figure out how to make a product and business out of it. And that's where most of the hard work is, you know. You know, a lot of the work is in figuring out how to commercially contextualize an invention, figure out how to make it a price point that's reasonable, figure out who the market is, figure out marketing and manufacturing and distribution, all those things. That's what a businessman or entrepreneur would do. And so for an invention like that, the goal would be to eventually hand it over to people like that. Um, mm-hmm. We could do that kind of thing. So we, in the case of this one, we didn't set about trying to do that right away because it is a humanitarian invention that we, you know, specifically work on as a malaria intervention. It'd be nice to save you from mosquitoes in the Midwest, but it's vastly less <laughs> important than saving people who's who are going to be getting malaria from a mosquito bite Mm -hmm. so um so we want to advance it ourselves so that we can be sure that it's an invention that we can send to africa and in places where there's still malaria and and have an effect and so we built out an insectary in our mosquito or uh, in our lab for raising mosquitoes so we raise mosquitoes that in our in the lab and then um, we can study them and test them with the system um, we also have a bunch of laser experts around. These are just, you know, exotic resources that not every product development company would have. And so, um, I'll just so ask was, my laser expert. Yeah, right. Ask your laser expert. What frequency of laser is optimal for killing a mosquito in under 100 milliseconds? So, um, we're working on those kinds of things, and and when we're satisfied with it, that we have the answers that are needed to go make a product, then we'll hopefully hand it off to you know, a company that does that kind of work. And how do you guys select which problems to go after? Well, you know, we've tried different things. Um, you know, initially we just went after problems that we thought sounded big and interesting um, and sort of underrepresented problems, so things that other people weren't really working on. Um, and then, you know, that meant, you know, guessing a lot. Sometimes we just worked on things we thought were cool. Eventually, uh, we've got a team that does, you know, kind of 
market analytics, business development guys who can figure out, you know, if you just put a little work into proving this invention isn't totally crazy, I might be able to sell it to those guys who are trying to make this kind of product. So there's things like that that are improving for us because now we have a lot more folks working on figuring out the whole life cycle of an invention. Mm-hmm. So that feeds back into prioritizing things for our team. But the truth is, you know, inventions I've got, I'm not worried about that. We're really, really good at invention. We're the biggest patent filer in America most years. But what we need are problems. So for me, what's valuable is a problem. I'm, you know, more interested in figuring out how do I collect good problems and understand them well and quickly and do the appropriate invention. Because if I don't understand the problem, I'll still invent something. Which won't be useful, and it might take a while to figure that out. Mm-hmm. If I can understand the problem, then maybe I'll invent the right thing. That reminds me, uh, I went to uh, guitar building school, actually, right after... Oh, awesome. After uh, I graduated from college with my degree in comparative religion, I was like, what am I going to do with my degree? I'm going to go to guitar building school. And uh, the guy who ran the school had a, a saying, which he was like, uh, a great guitar builder can build a great guitar out of great wood, but they can build a fine guitar out of almost anything. And he, to prove it, he built a guitar out of plywood. Yeah. And it was a great sounding acoustic guitar. Yeah, right. And so, you know, in my job, I'm a professional inventor. I can come up with a solution to any any problem. And yeah. you give me any problem, and I can come up with an inventive solution. Um, but if you give me a great problem, then, you know, there's a, a bigger opportunity to come up with something transformative yeah. and impactful on society. So, yeah, exactly right. So, as a, like, long-time professional inventor, what are the... How do you approach invention? You've got a problem. I mean, you've talked a little about, you know, how do I apply my superpowers, but do you have any, like, particular methods or, uh, like, mental tricks you use to try to, you know, jump off the tracks and come up with ideas? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you the most, I mean, uh, for us as an organization, and I I didn't think this through before, and this wasn't obvious to me, but... You know, there's this great movie, I think, from like the early 90s or something called The Zero Effect, which had Ben Stiller. And it was a hilarious movie. I don't even know if it was popular, but the main character was this guy named Daryl Zero, who was the world's greatest private detective. Mm -hmm. And so he had this, at one point in the middle of the movie, sits down and explains his operating theory of private detection and how it works and why he's the best. And it goes like this. He says, if you were looking for something, in particular like your keys uh, that you've lost, and of all the things in the world, you're only looking for one of them. And your odds of finding them are really, really, really low. But if you just go looking in general for anything, you are 100% bound to find something. (laughs) (laughs) And so... You know, you asked what it is that that I think of as being kind of the the keys to being successful as a inventor, especially specializing in that long term. And um, I was going to explain two of them. One is that 
we turn invention into a team sport. And so what that means is we get a bunch of inventors working together with a bunch of different kinds of knowledge. There's no two guys in the room with the same background or women in the room with the same background. We have all different experience and knowledge. And so, for example, I I know a lot about the cutting edge of what's going on with computers, although a lot of other people are pretty up on that too. But I don't know anything about what's going on in photonics, um, but we have guys who do, and so we'll have them in the room as well. And when we're inventing, we're often finding inventions that are at the borders of those different areas in science and technology. And so that's been a process that was more successful than we imagined. At this point, we're the biggest patent filer in America most of the time, um, and that's just because uh, we're quite prolific at that. And then the second thing that we do is we just operate at a really, really large scale. And so in our business, we expect to be wrong almost all the time because you're trying to figure out not only what technology is going to be possible in the future, but what problems are we going to have and are these going to be a good match for each other? And we're just going to be wrong a lot. But we plan for that. You know, in our minds, um, our our business model is to have a batting average of one in a thousand. We literally expect to be wrong 999 times um, for every hit that we get. And we think that this is a hits business. You know, occasionally we're going to get something cool. I mean, we're happy with our hit rate. We got a new kind of nuclear reactor that's powered by nuclear waste out of our work. Really? We think that that kind of invention could pay for a lot of failures. <laughs> so we keep going because that's that's the kind of hits we're going for. If you take on a big enough problem and you get an invention that's, that's got enough potential, then you can um, keep going and you can get more hit at bat uh, experiences. And so that's the way that we do it. Now, a lot of other companies or other inventors don't operate at that large of a scale. You know, the way that I describe our business is, you know, a venture capitalist will take like a hundred million dollars, put it in a dozen startups and hope one of them pays for all the failures. In our business, we'll take a hundred million dollars and invest it in a thousand patents and hope one of them pays for all the failures. And that that's an unprecedented kind of business model. Now, for smaller inventors, they want a better average than we have, and it's totally smart for them to try and get one. And there are ways that they do that. One is that they invent in context, so especially inventors who are working in a company, in an industry, they know the problem more intimately than we ever will. And there's a lot of really important invention that happens in that context, especially iterative kinds of invention where you make things a little better than they were before. Mm -hmm. uh, we really suck at that kind of thing. And, um, and our business doesn't work for that. So um, we have, we're at a big disadvantage there, and that's what a lot of um, smaller inventors are really good at. You know, I work on, a good example of this is, you know, I work on uh, 3D printing and trying to invent new 3D printing technologies. And I worked on MakerBot um, before, and MakerBot is a is an interesting example of a company that took, you know, 
what was an exotic industrial 3D printing machine and turned it into, that cost $100,000, turned it into a $2,000 desktop machine that you can buy for schools and, and homes even. And so, it, you know, MakerBot made it possible for a lot of people to hear about 3D printing, but also see it and use it and play with it and get some experience with it and, you know, add that to their imagination. Well, um, I'm trying to invent for 3D printing, but I look at an industry like that, and I think the guys at MakerBot or at Stratasys or 3D Systems or any of the big 3D printing companies, they're going to be really good at inventing uh, faster 3D printers, bigger 3D printers, printers that support more materials, um, cheaper 3D printers, all that kind of stuff. And so I don't work on that. I don't try to invent any of that stuff because I figure I'm at a disadvantage. But what I do is I look out into the future and I assume if the industry had all of that in five or 10 years, bigger, faster, then what would they want? Yeah. Yeah, They had a bigger, faster 3d printer that was cheaper and supported a bunch of materials, uh, which is what, you know, if you've ever used a 3d printer, that's your wish list. (laughs) Uh, Then, then what would you want? That one. (laughs) Yeah. They're really slow. It's a one pixel printer, you know? Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's a way that I kind of cheat at invention is that I try to understand what everybody else is working on and try not to compete with them directly, but try and get out in front of it. So I look for what are new applications for 3D printers? What are things that nobody else is trying to do yet that might make sense further down the road? And probably the one I'm most notorious for is inventing new kinds of 3D printers to print food. Which essentially, uh, at least when I got started, nobody was trying to do that because it sounds crazy. But when you look at what um, 3D printers are good for, they're really useful when you need to customize things and when you need to make everything you make manufacture a little bit different. Well, if we can correlate your diet to health effects, then uh, we could start to, you know, make meals that are customized for you. And um, that's something that computers would be really good at, but we've never really used computers to make meals before. And so um, I started trying to invent in that area. And I don't have much competition. Uh, you know, you, as you can imagine, that's not something most of the industry is going to be working on for a while. Cool. Fascinating. Well, what about you yourself? Like, Do you have any like mental tricks? Do you meditate or... You know, whack yourself in the head. Any, any, <laughs> what do you, do you have any tricks for like when you're trying to come uh, up with Recommend, no. Um, you know, for me, I think that what's been very helpful for me is that, you know, my life is pretty low stress. I, you know, don't have, I've been careful not to take on any more responsibilities or distractions or maintenance tasks than necessary. Um, so I'm free to go and play mm-hmm. uh, and free to, you know, spend my time internalizing those problems, internalizing what new technologies come, try to understand them, try to play with them. I'm a junkie on Kickstarter. I buy almost every new gadget that ever com- gets posted on Kickstarter. I spend like $1,000 a month on Kickstarter because I want to experience every new thing that's possible, especially with computers first, you know, I want to get that in my head. And so I do those things 
It's, um, your, it's your, literally your job. Yeah, it's literally my job to buy shit on Kickstarter <laughs> stuff. Nice. I mean, and um, and play with it and get that in my head. And so you know, like I don't play video games, but I go try them all. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to see what's new. If something new happens, I want to go and see it and experience it. And I want to put that in my brain as a as a, again another potential superpower that I can apply. And um, I've been doing that longer than anybody. And so, you know, when I see a new thing, um, like in the 80s, I would literally get my hands on every new piece of software ever made up until probably the up until the probably 93, 94. I had literally used every piece of software ever made commercially that you could get. I would get it. I would download it. I would click on everything, every command, learn what it could do. And then delete it. And I would fill my head with what was possible with computers that way. And by probably 95 or 6 or 7, it was it got to be too fast and I couldn't keep up. And so now, um, and now it's certainly too fast for anyone to keep up, but I, you know, I try to still go and get some experience with every kind of new technology that comes along because I want to know what's possible and, um, and use that when I'm trying to invent for the future what are you most excited about for the future in it being well, in a unique position to gauge that uh, well what i think is that we're at the very beginning of figuring out what to do with computers I mean, people think we've been at it for a while and now that they've gotten so small what else could they possibly do and i, I just think that they're missing the bigger picture like we are at the very beginning of figuring out what to do with all this computation mm-hmm. and so i'm still excited about computers you know when i had my first computer it's it was about one kiloflop i didn't have to i think it's total you know flops are what we use to measure how fast a computer is floating point operations per second super slow machine and i had this fantasy of getting my hands on a Cray XMP, which was this giant supercomputer um, that had 400 megaflops. And I just couldn't imagine what I could do with all that speed and power. Well, right now, in your pocket, you are hauling around 115 gigaflops. <laughs> it's an unfathomable amount of computational ability. And you've probably got six different fart apps. So what I'm trying to figure out is how do you get out in front of that and figure out what am I going to do? Not on, not with 115 gigaflops, but with 115 teraflops. Mm-hmm. And we're still just trying to figure out how to put that to use. And so much is possible. Um, it's difficult to predict, and that's why you know we leave that to science fiction. Are you a big uh, reader of science uh, fiction? Do you- I'm not. You know, I always I always feel like I'll be accused of plagiarism. Um, that. Anyway, but I don't I don't read much science fiction. One of my partners is a science fiction novelist, and I think that you know the stuff that they do is amazing. Um, but again, it's just one of those things where I feel like if I'm going to be reading about science fiction, I should instead be reading about science fact and <laughs> trying to implement science fiction. You're living it. You're creating it. Like the things yeah. that people think are you know fiction, all are actually you're job to create as reality 
or that's, that's I think that's a fair way of seeing it. And I think you know that's what's exciting about technology is that we get that you know we, we get new options every day and new capabilities and um, and you know every day we make more humans too. And uh, turns out at that and we we kill more and we make more. We kill more and we make more. And if there's one thing they're good for, it's making more problems. Mm-hmm. And so um. So I feel like we'll, you know, we're never going to be done. I like that. Yeah. No, you're not going to get put out of business. Oh, the last problem's been solved. Yeah, gonna, exactly. Uh, close right. up shop now. And, yeah, that, uh, right. Exactly. Go home. So, well. Remember that, parents. Your kids, uh, <laughs> they want job security. They should become inventors. Right. Well, I often tell people my greatest invention by far is, is my job itself. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's not really a, a guidebook to becoming an inventor. It's not really an established, credible vocation. And so I had to invent it. And it sounds yeah. like you had to invent it as well. And uh, uh, I think that's true. I mean, for me, you know, I, I got, I think of myself as being really lucky. But the truth is, I just always took whatever job uh, I thought was most interesting. I optimized for doing things that that were new, at least to me, if not new to the world. And um, I always uh, felt like I better not screw it up or nobody would hire me again. So I worked really hard at everything, every opportunity I got. And almost every job I ever got was from a referral. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't, there's no job in the world that I'm qualified for. I mean, I could, I don't have a resume. (laughs) Um, And, you know, uh, if you read the job requirements for any job in the world, uh, I wouldn't fit them. And so uh, the only work I was ever going to get was through referrals um, and uh, people telling other people that, that I was the guy that they needed. And um, and so I kept that up for a long time, and I just never compromised on taking a crappy, safe job to, you know – to have that job security or something, you know, I always went for what was more interesting and that's paid off for me. I feel like I'm really lucky that it worked out and that I got to do that. Um, now I, now I guess I have, uh, and now I guess I can do whatever I want, you know? <laughs> well, congratulations on, uh, having an awesomely interesting and compelling job. I mean, I have, an awesomely compelling and wonderful I job. Do. I love your job. I wish I could do more of what you do. I love shipping a product. Yeah, um, it's so great to get to see people using something you worked on. I miss that. <laughs> yeah, there's something very gratifying, for sure, about it. Well, I'm very, very glad to to meet you, Pablo. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If anyone wanted to learn more about intellectual ventures and anything else you're involved in, where would you direct them online? We have, um, so our website is the intellectual is intellectual ventures lab.com. Um, and there's some info in there about some of our cool projects. Uh, we've worked on a lot of amazing stuff. You know, we have a, um, invention for a machine that can suppress hurricanes. Uh, we invented a new antenna technology that can get fast wireless to anyone on the world. Um, we invented a new uh, type of super thermos for keeping vaccines cold that will help improve vaccination campaigns in developing countries. Um, a lot of really cool stuff that we get to work on like that with Bill Gates. Um, and so, 
yeah, we have a lot of things that would be interesting to almost anyone. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you again for coming on the show. I look forward to uh, getting to know you better. I think okay. you know, we're just getting started, and uh, have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks, man. And there you have it, folks, Pablos Holman. That is a fascinating guy with an amazingly interesting job. Please check the show notes if you want to check out more about the Intellectual Ventures Laboratory. And if you get a chance, please go over to iTunes and leave us a review. And you can subscribe to our podcast. You can tune in each week to hear more big ideas and learn more from our inspiring inventor guests. Until next time, invent something great. Thank you for tuning in to The Inventor's Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it gets your mind racing. Please go over to iTunes and leave a five-star review if you found this episode helpful. And if you want to learn more, you can find me at theinventorsmind.com or follow me on Twitter at InventorChris. If you have an idea and want to take action, head on over to trident-design.com to start the process of bringing your idea to life. Until next time, happy inventing.